The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. Mrs. French's cat is missing. The signs are posted all over town. Have you seen Honey? We've all seen the posters, but nobody has seen Honey the cat. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. A little piece each time. You have a lot of spirits in here. But there's one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. Come to us. We are ready. Are you? What's with the, the get up? Oh, I do it blend in. You know, you know, zombies don't mess with other zombies. Buddy of mine, makeup guy, showed me how to do this. Cornstarch, you know, some berries, a little licorice for the ladies. It suits my lifestyle. You know, I like to get out and do stuff. Just play nine holes in the Riviera. Just walk down. Nobody there. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened. In spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault. Because it was my project. And I insisted. I insisted on everything. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. Where a bunch of people gather around a table and they talk about films that'll never make a film study course syllabus. But we do film study type analysis anyway. And uh, this week's film is a movie called Stakeland. It's available on the Flicks of Nets, and uh, we'll be talking more about that soon. But first, we've got to do some introductions. To my left, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and much like Mr., anytime I visit an old Westie type settlement, I go to the bar. Shortly thereafter, followed by the brothel. I've seen it happen, dear listener, as a true fact. To my right, if you would, ma'am. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and I didn't le- believe in boogeymen, but then when the world woke up, it woke up to a nightmare. And so did Alex. I, my name is Dustin Sells, and I'm just glad to be here talking vampires with you fine people and you dear listeners out there across the interwebs. Now, dear listener, to warn you, this is not a review show. This is an analysis show. So there will be much spoilerific spoilerage. Uh, that will take place as we do our analysis, but we do begin the show with a quick synopsis from the voice of the Dollar Theater this time, and also um, we we do a uh, our quick thumbs up, thumbs down 
reviews of the film. And then after that, we get into all that spoiler territory. So if you have not caught Stakeland yet, uh, I recommend you probably do. I think spoilerage um, probably is a factor with this particular film. And so uh, do that and take a look at Stakeland and then come back and join us for our analysis. But let's begin now with that synopsis with the uh, cheap dollar theater voice. Mr. Dalton Stewart, if you would, sir. Martin was a normal teenage boy before the country collapsed in an empty pit of economic and political disaster. Which is not really what happens. No, no one is about it all. Not a very good synopsis this time, uh, Stakeland, or uh, IMDb. But uh, that's what IMDb That's all of it. it. That's it, yeah. That, that's it, wow. Well, it doesn't oh, mention wait, the... Oh, oh, it's a much longer one. I'll go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. We got a long one this week. Martin was a normal teenage boy before the country collapsed in an empty pit of economic and political disaster. A vampire epidemic has swept across what is left of the nation's abandoned towns and cities, and it's up to Mister, a death-dealing rogue vampire hunter, to get Martin safely north to Canada, the continent's new Eden. Thank you very much. I didn't know you were a crazy cat lady that smoked like a pack a day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, all right, there you go, dear listener. Now you know what it's about. I really thought it was going to be that short synopsis that did mention vampires because this movie's barely about vampires. Yeah, not a lot. But more about that anon. Let's begin with our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. I begin with you, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. What say you? Um, it's good. I liked it. I had a fun ride with it, honestly. Um, I will like to critique, and the listener will hear shortly that I don't really have much analysis to bring because I don't feel like besides a few really prominent themes that I believe that the other hosts are going to discuss there's not a whole lot of um really substantial depth to this movie despite it kind of giving this allure of de a depth because there's all these philosophical philosophical questions being asked constantly but um you know, even though I liked it, it does play a lot into the horror movie tropes of the black guy's gonna die. Oops. Sorry. Is that a... People... No. Spoilers. Everyone knows that. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever watched a horror movie, and I this is probably my sixth out. ever, I knew that he was going to die, and it totally happens. So keep in mind that whenever you watch this, if you have any preconceived notions about how horror movies are supposed to work... That's how it's going to happen, and unfortunately, that's the case, and that kind of disappoints me. Uh, learning that it's an indie fic kind of flick kind of surprises me, because I feel like a lot of elements were really well done, considering budget shortfalls and the typical nonsense that happens with indie, indie flicks. Uh, there was some really questionable graphical special effects during that sequence where the lady is holding onto the car. Do you remember that? Yes. I do remember and that. And it's really the, bad. Yeah, that's about the really one, I think, particular... That shows the quality. That shows the budget constraints, because it's very clearly a lot of... You say that this was a $650,000 film. <clears throat> that's what I'm saying, and that's the only moment where the budget shows. Because that's, that's a, not a lot of money. It's not a ton of money, but no, it's... No, I mean, that, that was one moment. That's a lot of money for, like, a talky mumblecore movie. That's not a lot of money for a vampire apocalypse movie. Fair enough. Where the vampires actually yeah. are exhibiting superhuman tendencies and yeah, like crazy ass makeup. And very stuff. monstrous looking. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I thought the concept of it being vampires that are actually kind of zombies, except they're 
only night walkers, essentially. That was a really interesting take on it, and still calling them vampires. If you called them zombies and then just still have them walking around at night, I don't know if it would have been as interesting. I do want to point out to the concerned listener who's thinking, this looks a lot like, uh, plot-wise, a lot like Zombieland, and has a similar name. They were in production at the same time. And drain all the humor from Zombieland, right. and you get something like Stakeland. It's, it's much bleaker, I think, than a typical ex- horror, horror yes. film. It's very bleak. Right. Which kind of gives it that um, maybe false manifestation of extreme psychological death whenever it kind of just does this kind of surface treatment of some issues. Um, I was really, I would be really interested, and if I would watch more of The Walking Dead, I'm sure that would get this fix of seeing this played out on a larger scale. It would have been fun to see it as a miniseries of some kind to see. But there's some really great aspects of the movie. A lot of aspects surprise me about that it's really indie and not like a larger uh, budget film. And But there are still some major issues that maybe if it had more funding or something, you can always throw money at something and it helps a lot. So I, I really enjoyed it though. Fair enough. Thank you very much, Miss Bohan and Mr. Dalton Stewart. Do you like this movie? Thumbs up, thumbs down, and a reason or two why it works or doesn't. I like this movie a whole lot. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was the only host that had watched this film prior to our, our review of it, and I pushed very, I've been pushing pretty hard to do this since I saw it show up on streaming. Um, so I was very excited when we sat down to do uh, Shocktober this year, and we decided we wanted to do at least one vampire movie, and this was still streaming. So I was like, hey... Uh, and Arthur, Arthur, uh, who is unfortunately not with us this evening, uh, he has been once again relocated to an undisclosed location. But he also pushed for this one pretty hard, so I'm glad we got to do it. Uh, I like Stakeland an awful, awful lot. Uh, I think the budget constraints help it quite a bit, actually. I'm going to disagree with you there, Alex. I think because they can't show so much of the action, they are forced to focus on the small moments a little more. Uh, it trades a lot of the thrills you might expect based on the poster of this movie and based on just the general premise trades a lot of those thrills uh, for just a really kind of oppressive atmospheric uh, character study. Um, they don't, the, the one drawback of that is the characters aren't very well drawn, um, but yeah. they, they attempt it at least. And I think that's worth saying. <clears throat> well, I think there's a way they sort of escape it. You know, there's a point where uh, sister is going to talk about, uh, what these guys had said and done, and he says, we don't do history. Yep. And uh, I, I kind of liked that shorthand. I do too. It worked for me. Well, and that in and of itself is kind of a great character moment. And again, it's not a character study per se, but they do trade what you're expecting for some very kind of small moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they yeah. don't focus on the big because they can't really afford it. So they focus on those small moments in these towns and uh, driving across country together. And I, I, I dig this movie a lot. I think it's impressive. Uh, but really beautifully shot. It, it it falls into the apocalypse trend of a lot of grays and browns, uh, but it still looks really good uh, and is well shot. It's interesting, and I like the main characters. And um, Mister uh, was clearly grown in a vat next to Mickey Rourke because yes, he was. Man, whew, the appearance is uncanny. But no, I, I dig this movie a lot. Uh, it does have some shortcomings, as I mentioned, but uh, I'm a big fan. Excellent, yeah. excellent. I would say similar things. I think it was very effective. I really enjoyed the film. It is um, basically a zombie movie where the zombies are sort of vampires. And I'm okay with that, just knowing the genealogy of vampires and zombies. That the reason why we have zombie movies mm-hmm. is because George A. Romero adopted Richard Matheson's vampire story, I Am Legend. 
into a zombie film. So it's fine with me that they're doing that. And uh, but if you're looking for you know um, Vlad Tepish, you know, yeah. four hundred years old in his craggy gothic castle, this is not what you're going to be experiencing here. And you're not going to experiencing the sort of comedic uh, levity of something like Zombieland. It's definitely a very bleak picture uh, for for lots of reasons. And I think that's fine. And I think it all works. I, I enjoyed. Uh, the film a lot. I enjoyed uh, the performances of the actors. Um, and Daniel Harris is is great in this as Belle, and she is 37 years old. Doesn't look it. No. I know. I mean, she definitely is playing a teenager to go alongside um, our main character, Martin. Horror movie buffs will probably recognize Daniel Harris as... From uh, everything. But more, more specifically, uh, Michael Myers' niece in uh, Halloween 4 and 5. Right, yeah, very she, young. Very young. I think she's contractually obligated to be in all the horror movies now. Well, yeah, I think she likes doing them, and, and I think um, people can afford her price tag a long mm-hmm. time because she never kind of broke out of that horror world. But I think she has fun doing them, and she's solid. I mean, because I, she's in so many of them, I assume she enjoys doing them. And she's great. Yeah, she's a, a really underutilized actress. I, think. I have no complaints. Um, Kelly McGillis um, rearing her head. Uh, and doing a great performance there, um, and you know we were we saw her in the Innkeepers on uh, last October with Ty West, and she's another sort of indie horror um, older lady darling, you know if I can use the word darling and older lady in the same sentence. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I love her. I love yeah. her and all the things she does. She carries just so much weight and just screen presence. And uh, yeah, I'm just really really enjoyed every bit of the movie. I loved our villain, especially uh, uh, Jebediah. Dragon. I'm sorry, I spoke over you. I said, I really enjoyed our villain, Jebediah. I thought he was fantastic, too. Yeah, he's great. So I, I think he's some really solid acting. I, I really, uh, Martin's got a pretty typical uh, voiceover hero role, mm-hmm. but um, I think he's solid. I like the kid. Uh, I say kid, he's my age, but I think he's good in the movie. I, I think he, he turns in a good performance. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think you, you focus on the performances, which are definitely something that helped drive this film. Absolutely. And um, and I will go ahead and call him a kid, because he's your age. But none, <laughs> nonetheless, well, there you go, dear listener. You know that we're sort of biased pro. We enjoy the film. It's really beautifully shot. It doesn't really... It feels very much like an indie film, uh, like an indie sort of art house film, but it just happens to be the sort of action horror um, romp in a apocalyptic post-vampire world, so there's some awesomeness there. You mentioned Mickey Rourke as um, the, um, the the test tube. I think the other half of the test tube of DNA that made our main character, Mr. Up, was uh, Steve McCaddy. Uh, yeah. yeah, Steve McCaddy, Mickey Rourke. I mean, that guy, I wish this guy was in more stuff. He doesn't act a whole lot. He does a lot with Nichols, you know, yeah. uh, Mickles, excuse me, the director. Well, and, they wrote the film together. And then he was in his prior film. And so, uh, Mulberry Lane? Yes, I think that's what it's called. If, if I didn't know... Uh, however, that the, uh, our lead, Mister, uh, was a co-writer on the film, I would have assumed that they went. Mickey Rourke was their first choice, and this is what they could get. If I didn't know he was a co-writer, uh, another shade of great acting is um, that actor is a uh, New York Italian, and he sounds like it when he's normally talking. And so he definitely puts on an accent and inhabits it. it definitely affects kind of a gener- generic Midwestern dialect. Yeah, yeah. It's, I had, I would have known that if you hadn't told yeah. me. Totally, totally a, a Bronx New Yorker. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Just some interviews with him, I'm guessing? Uh-huh. Yeah, I and would not have, yeah. I was amazed. So, well, let's move on. Let's do what we're here to do. Let's bring some analysis to this film. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Well, we're going to retread two kinds of ground tonight. Something that I've talked about on the show a couple of times, and that's um, surrogate families and masculinity. Um, surrogate families we talk quite a bit about on, on Terminator 2. 
Um, and I think that kind of loops in nicely with this and masculinity. Um, I've talked about ad nauseum on the show, but I really feel like they're very firmly entrenched in this. Uh, and I'm going to say in a bad way, unfortunately. Um, and here's why. Mr. is a great character and his relationship with Martin is great in that we get to see this this kind of father-son-esque dynamic play out where it's uh, more of a mentorship. Um, I think Mr. really views Martin as more of a colleague, um, that he has a lot to teach than as a son proper. I don't think he has any paternal feelings towards him. I think he sees him as somebody that uh, has potential. He seems to be incapable of paternal feelings. Yeah, I don't think he has, uh, has them at all. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not incapable of, of caring about people, I don't think, in his, in his own way. But yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, paternal is just not in his nature. However, he, he knows that this kid needs his help. Um, and he knows that this kid's got some got something. Uh, the problem is, what Mr.'s got is just a tropey McTroperson uh, dudehood um, all over him. What I mean when I say that, listener, is that Mr. is a hard-drinking, he's a womanizing, He's all-time badass McBatterson, doesn't want to talk about the past, doesn't want to talk about feelings. And that's a problem, because that's not the only um, type of masculinity there is. And if we saw more representations of masculinity outside of that in this kind of film, I don't think it would be a problem. But here it is a problem. Because what he is doing is foregoing... I'm sorry, rather... uh, what he's doing here is carrying on this myth that the only way to be a man is to be tough, to be self-sufficient, to not need others, to be quiet, uh, which is a problem for me, uh, and to be just general badass McTufferson. Um, he's, he's, he's a Batman-type figure in that he's always ready and can you know get his ass kicked uh, twice as hard as he can dish it out. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that character in general, uh, especially that there, there is sometimes, uh, particularly when that character veers into uh, misogyny and just generally mistreating other human beings without the film or the depiction in general knowing that it's doing that. And I wouldn't say that Mr. goes that far, but what he does is continue to be that representation of masculinity that we typically see in film as toughness. Um, And again, not in and of itself a problem. The problem being, though, that that's all we really get in most films. Uh, We don't you know, your John McClane's, your T1, T850s, I mean, that is that is the hallmark of movie tough guys. And there's different ways to be a tough guy um, outside of this this fairly familiar uh, and fairly cliche portrayal. Um, again, I don't want to take anything away from this performance because it's great, and I don't want to take anything away from the relationship that him and Martin have as characters because I think that actually elevates this portrayal of masculinity is this leadership role that he takes on, which in and of itself is familiar to this trope, but I think it helps elevate it because it doesn't take on that typical uh, father-son thing you might expect. It, it is uh, very similar to uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day in that there's kind of an inversion of that, whereas John Connor almost becomes a father to the Terminator as much as the Terminator is to John Connor. Uh, Mr. and <clears throat> Mister and Martin kind of exist on a level playing field uh, of helping one another. It's, it's more of a teacher role than a father role, uh, which that I find very interesting and very valuable. That's the direction they choose to go with it. Yeah, Martin even says at one point, I'm his helper. You know, I'm not his kid, I'm his helper. So that, that, I think that's the most interesting that we get, is seeing how Mr. and Martin play off of one another. But there are definitely shades of that sort of problematic, uh, sort of tough guy masculinity we see all too much of. So keep an eye out for that, listener.
Do you have anything? Nope. Sorry. I mean. Do you want okay, to talk I'll just, and I'll, I'll see if talk. I cut some things? Okay. I'll talk. I, um, the only thing. Let, let him pitch to you. Huh? What do you? Let him pitch to you. Let him pitch to you. Yeah. Let him kick you off. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohan, what observations would you like to make? Well, um, I just want to bring and kind of reiterate some thoughts that Dalton put forward about these specific kinds of tropes and how they just really reoccur throughout the whole movie. Um, and I did like what Dalton said earlier about having, if this wasn't a low-budget indie flick, we wouldn't have gotten the introspective analysis or the attempted introspective analysis of these characters. It would have just been go, 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 action, 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 vampires, you know, for days. And that was really cool that, you know, that was a good thing to bring up. And so I kind of agree more with what Dalton was saying about, um, you know, less is more kind of mm -hmm. helping this movie out. But unfortunately it didn't help it out in fleshing out um, any of the characters backstories in any way which um i feel like there are a lot of cool places it it could have gone mm. like you have this really we have this religious uh, this main religious theme just punching us in the face throughout the whole movie but yet we never really talk about how the sister is legitimately a sister um in the sense of the catholic sense and that she actually gets uh sexually assaulted by a bunch of guys multiple times and we never really get any kind of um any kind of real talk about this mm -hmm. it just kind of happens and we never really you know are given a vehicle to kind of interpret what that means because it's like oh it happened and it's done because the past is in the past and i mean i'd hate to say that's like a catch-all for them being able to escape having to make the characters deal with their issues and the fact that we do have this woman in the party who's pregnant, which we could have made a, like a great Virgin Mary kind of, you know, carrying this child, and then the child dies, and what does that mean for the I think they of sort world? of are doing that to undo it. Right. Well, how do you mean? I, I think they totally are playing her up as the Virgin Mary as they're making their way to Bethlehem or to Egypt or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, she's great with child, and they have to make this journey, but they're upending the whole thing and, you know, letting her die in the end. Fair enough. I, Alex, I think you make a good point. Um, and it's not to say that a backstory is the only way to flush out a character because there's a lot of times the most interesting thing about characters is putting them in new situations and seeing how they react to those new situations. So, uh, but, but you're definitely right in that they, and it's not that they do a disservice to the female characters in particular. No. They do a disservice to all the characters. It's yes. not an exclusive uh, problem to the female. There's plenty of characters in this movie and not a lot of them get a really, you know, we get cool character moments, but I don't think we get any real character movement, as, as, and I think you're making a good point with yeah, that. Yeah, most of the, even though the the main character, Rose, isn't a dynamic character, I mean, everyone that surrounds him is a static character, except for, I mean, one can hypothesize that Belle, I mean, she obviously makes a big, isn't that, yeah, Belle's mm -hmm. her name, makes a big life change with leaving the diner. And showing that she's ready to move on. But um, pretty much people die in the state that they kind of arrive in. Which, I don't know, could be the director's real talk of your history doesn't matter. Your backstory doesn't matter. You're just going to die pretty much the same way that you came into this world. And it's going to be ugly. Well, I think you're right. I think the only arc is Martin. 
Yeah. Martin has an arc and everyone else just sort of is Tags along. Yeah. Or dies. Or tags along then dies. And, you know, the fact that these characters don't really have a chance to grow either, you know, would that be portraying Martin as this kind of unintentional messiah? Is that going a step too far? Because you have all of this... I mean, he makes a... I don't know. It um, seems pretty hostile to messianism yeah. in, in any way. But but definitely um, good points. You were thinking of Peggy, by the way, who lived to die, or Belle's the pregnant woman. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. I thought, forgot who we were talking about. Uh, but definitely definitely good points on what we could have done more character. I think characters, I think for sure, and and that ability to, or rather, that strive to maybe read some messianism into it is maybe again a comment on. We don't really have a whole lot to talk about these characters, unfortunately, and yeah. and there could have been more, and that's that's a downside for sure. But I mean, and I think, I think the film survives that downfall. But definitely, I, I agree, there could have been more done there. Right. Well, thank you very much, Miss Alexandra <clears throat> Bohannon. Um, the analysis I want to bring is I do want to put my clergy collar on for just a moment. <laughs> talk a little bit about sort of the religion um, being depicted here that you know the people are, are, are striving for something to hold on to and the loudest preacher seems to hold sway and uh, just the uh, I want to talk about eschatology is really what I want to talk about this is they call this a post-apocalyptic movie and uh, apocalypsis means the revealing I would say that there's nothing revealed in this movie that it's a misnomer the apocalypse of St. John is about the revealing of the coming of a messiah and that is not what these genre films are called. It's really the wrong name for them. They're post-catastrophic films. And it's just misnamed as a genre. So that, that's, that's sort of something I want to say at the outset. Well, that's just kind of a language problem in general, is the word apocalypse has moved on from its, its Latin roots and taken on a two totally different meaning. Right. Well, and, and the reason why it has is because of the sort of misappropriation in Christian theology of the, the apocalypse of St. John, the book of Revelation is what I'm talking about. And, uh, and that this, mo- this movie kind of helps reflect uh, that misappropriation. I don't think they're, they're treating it as a misappropriation. But I do find it interesting that um, throughout Hollywood cinema and, again, sort of this, uh, you know, uh, this current stream right now, um, there, there are books coming out. I was asked questions not very long ago about all these blood moons and you know how it's all going to come to a terrible end because the signs and portents are in the sky, and it's all about how things go very, very badly, and um, which is you know contrary to Christian theology. And there is also the strange thing that occurs in which uh, we seem to think it's much more likely that it will end in catastrophe than for things to get better. That overall in society, that this sort of theological um, misappropriation of these texts has um, caused people to think, no, 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 it's not going to end up in Star Trek. We're going to end up all dead and zombies, or vampire-ish zombies. And that, um, you know, with the, with the climate crisis, with the current Ebola outbreak, and uh, these sort of things that are going on, that, that, that the human um, sort of log line, you know, the lower third of all the tickers of all the news outlets right now, is that, and we're all going to die. Um, that's that's how it's all going to happen. It's just going to be terrible. And the, the next threat, whether it be a terrorist or whether it be an outbreak or whether it be um, some sort of you know cataclysmic uh, climate catastrophe, it's going to fry us all. What if it's an outbreak starring Dustin Hoffman? Uh, 
Well, it'll be limited to that one town and everyone will die, right? Nailed it. Yeah. And, and, and so that sort of thing is being played up. And you see that the religious lot embracing this misappropriate theology, they embrace the vampires as the scourge and the hand of God. And that it's sort of this good thing that's going to happen, that's going to somehow cleanse the world. That, and, and this is really the problem with Christian uh, eschatological theology right now. In some circles, and I want to say it's a minority circle, but they write the most books and they get the most press in the news, is that this bad thing that's happening is actually good news and we ought to be like dancing on the graves or pissing on the graves of those people who suffer from it. It's a sort of apocalyptic um, name-checking of any catastrophe, whether it be the 9-11 attacks or Hurricane Katrina, and then some idiot on television who has a TV program. And Christians have done terrible things. The Inquisition, um, you know, the Salem Witch Trials, and Christian television are right all on the same level me, uh, right now. And uh, one of those things is these, these preachers start naming reasons, and again, they sort of celebrate God's judgment in this, because they seem to understand that uh, Revelation, and I'm not going to get into a big interpretive you know, uh, gloss of the book of Revelation right now, because this is not the show for that, but that sort of reading is that all it's about is about how terrible things are going to be, and we're so glad that the scourge of the Lord is now among us. And it, re it results in this really, really poor practice that is embraced by Christians and non-Christians alike, in that this idea that it's all going to burn, so why bother anyway? We can't get any better, that this sort of pessimism that we're all going to fry, and again, it's not just Christians who are making zombie movies, it's rarely Christians that are doing this, but they're drinking the same sort of stupid Kool-Aid uh, that much of Christian theology has drank, is that it's all going to be bad, there's all a cataclysm, global warming's happening, and there's nothing that we can do about it. I heard congressional representatives talking about this not very long ago, and so we might as well, you know, fiddle while Rome burns. And uh, that sort of eschatology is sort of tied up into this film, at least in the portrayal of the religious nutters of the movie. And they're dropping vampires into cities because they want judgment to happen and more people to be vampirized and terrorized. And that they're actually sort of, in, in some sense, gleeful about uh, these sort of horrors. And we don't have to look very far into newscasts to see that sort of glee at horror, that there's this opportunity now for military action. There's this opportunity now to sort of close up the borders and, and you know, circle the wagons. There's this opportunity to just say, well, you know, I guess we're now moving into that eschatological period. Instead of looking at eschatology in terms of the New Testament, which seems to be much more about renewal and about making the world a better place, that God's kingdom's already come and that it's coming and that we should make it look like God's kingdom. That seems to be the, the thrust of Christian theology when it's at its best. And this movie is definitely taking a pot shot at what's broken that. And, and that, that, uh, that, again, this sort of embrace of catastrophe that, um, that uh, fails to do anything about the world as is. And that that's exactly what the Christians do in this film, is they just ignore the world and allow Rome to burn. And uh, I, I find that critique to be there and prevalent. And I, I, I seem, to, seem to think that the film is... Um, naming that as a rejection of religion, um, of organized and unorganized flavors. But um, what I would say, dear listener, is that what we've had in the last 100 years or so, and I'm talking about sort of uh, this uh, you know, premillennialism development, and if you are in the know, you'll know what I'm talking about, um, that the, the, this, this particular strain of theology where the book of Revelation is a scary book. Strain where, like a virus. Right, 
Uh, and it is sort of, a, it's infected Christianity in really a negative sort of way. And so I'm glad of the excoriation, but what I would suggest only, and this is only the thing I want to say because I do have to happen to have a clergyman's collar, um, it, it is that Christian theology at its best doesn't always do that, but I'm glad that um, what's broken, it gets named. What I'm fearful of is that um, the best parts of doing something, because what I worry about is sort of the nihilism of mystery. We're just going to try to make our way and do our own thing and uh, just try to get away, you know, um, and kill as many vampires as we can. The thing is that there should be a new Eden, and we as human beings should not just let the way things are be the way they are, because it's just not good enough. We should do something about it and make New Eden as best we can. Dustin, what you accidentally did was make me realize uh, a trope in fiction. Um, the warrior hero uh, is not made to live in the world he leads people to. Uh, definitely a, a trope that might have its roots in the uh, the Moses tale. Yep. To an extent, also the Western. I'm thinking yeah. about oh. John Wayne's character in The Searchers. He's not fit yeah. for society. Well, that's and it's definitely something that came of prominence in, in Western film and you know cowboy films. Um, but is it? I think that trope I've just realized might have its roots in, in the idea that uh, Moses doesn't get to enter the Promised Lands, which is it's really interesting how how, how religious tales um, uh, and folklore outside of religious stories, but all kinds of folklore. Um, carries on and on and on throughout millennia and be kind of uh, kind of becomes entrenched in our popular culture. But uh, that light bulb for me at that moment when you said that about Mister not going to New Eden. The thing is, is that um, you know Christian theology at its best is about creating the yes. promised land. It's about yeah. getting there. It's about establishing this new people and doing things right in spite of all that's broke mm-hmm. in the Egypt of slavery yes. that they just left, or the or the vampiristic Southern United States that they're just trying to abandon. Um, what what this film seems to suggest about religion is that we just you know we 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 are so heavenly minded we're no earthly good and we wait for the for the, some sort of answer to come and then we die because we haven't done anything or we embrace the suffering which is the most hostile thing I can think of to um, proper Christian theology at all and so um, I, I rarely I, dear listener thank you for listening so far. Um, I rarely give theological readings on this show, but um, this was a time it seemed somewhat necessary and uh, something I I really did want to talk about at length. Well, it was a major theme, and I don't feel like... I certainly don't have the credentials nor the enough background knowledge to talk about it intelligently. So, I mean, you're the man for the job. You You got the white collar and stuff. So, yeah, I guess so. Well, all right. Thanks, guys, um, for those um, brilliant analyses and observations. Um, Dear listener, we'd love to know what you think about what we said so far. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Well, now we come to a point in the show, dear listener, where we make a final verdict. Does this movie get the stake, or does it get to live? And so we do our shelf or trash verdicts, and we give our else's or instead's. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? You know, I, I suggested this film, and I did. You did. And I did, because I like it a whole, whole lot. Uh, I'm a big fan of it, and I'm going to say shelf. 
Um, it, it is necessary viewing for all vampire, apocalypse, horror, and other related genre fans. You mean post-catastrophic. You're right. <laughs> if you're a fan of those things, though, you need to check this out. And I think uh, there's a lot here for people who aren't even particularly fans of those genres. I think there's still something here for you. So I definitely am going to say Shelf. I give it... Uh, Four trunks full of angry vampires out of five. Uh, recommended else viewing, I'm going to say uh, you should check out a film from 2012 starring Viggo Mortensen called The Road, based on the Cormac McCarthy novel. Oh, yes. Um, this film came out before that film, but not before the novel The Road, and I think there's definitely some inspiration um, from The Road in this Absolutely. film. Um, the Road, listener, is another um, post-catastrophic film uh, <laughs> starring Viggo Mortensen and uh, Cody McPhee, several names. Uh, as his son, and it's just the dad and boy, and um, it's a much, as bleak as this movie is, that movie's even bleaker, and has less good guys kicking ass. Um, it's a bummer of a movie, but it's very, very solid, so if, if you want some more of a, of a tough, grizzled guy trying to help a young kid survive, you should certainly check that out. Another else I'm going to say is a Vampires Rule the World movie, uh, but a totally different kind, and that's Daybreakers, with uh, Ethan Hawke. And Willem Dafoe and Sam Neill. Uh, in this story, vampires uh, have inherited the Earth. and But they're humanoid vampires that you're used to, your Dracula types. Uh, but they won. And now they're just kind of... Basically, the plot of Blade Three, I think so. If it worked. Uh, where they farm people for blood. And they're just kind of going on and milling their business. And there's lots of fun sci-fi things with how would we adapt everyday technology to creatures that can't see the reflections and can't go out during the sun uh, but can't die. One of the first things you notice in Daybreakers is everybody smokes because they can't get cancer, which is really funny. Uh, it's one of the first shots as everyone's waiting for the train because it's the daytime. You can't drive during the day uh, unless you've got a car with uh, magic tinted windows. And they're all smoking at the train station. So funny, it but it's funny. a really solid movie. Uh, good horror film, good action film. I like Daybreakers a whole lot. Um, and if it was streaming, we would have done it on this show already. Uh, but those are those are my my else's and whatnots. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Um, shelf or trash? Else or instead? I would say that this is a shelfable film. Definitely. I I apologize. Chin chin. Alex is recommending yet another horror film. Yeah. I mean, I apologize if I sounded really harsh during my analysis, but it does a lot of cool things really well, and I definitely would watch it again, and not just because, oh, now I need to interpret it using this lens of it being a drug-fueled stupor like it was with, you know, Lords of Salem, which, after you watch that movie, you're really unsure if you ever want to watch it again. Um, unless it was a show. Don't stop thinking about it, though. Right. So it's true. That's but thing. this is a movie that I, I enjoyed. I was I was unsettled, yes, but it was pleasurable and very interesting. I loved I loved the little moments that kind of make this movie the vampires and some of the faulty plausible elements. Like I always wondered how they had like a they had to have like a jumbo jet to jump off all those vampires. And not get bitten themselves. Anyway, that yeah, was... Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like inside that um, helicopter. That was cray. Hell, hellish nightmare. Cray. Um, anyway, so that was... Even though, with all of that, definitely a shuffleable film. Um, terms of recommendations, any kind of contagion movie. Um, obviously, this is a prime pairing with Zombieland, which... 
Are we going to announce Go ahead and say, yeah, we're going to watch it. Uh, this is a prime pairing with Zombieland, which we are going to watch in our Shocktober this year. So definitely, if you wanted to save this episode and that episode back-to-back, it would be super solid. Um, then I would also recommend, I think, is it 30 Days of Night? That's another one that's yes. like contagion-y. Um, that one I haven't seen. I just always best field vampires. I always see it at the at the movie store whenever those were a thing. I just remember picking up the cover a lot. And then um, a couple of video games actually. There's uh, Valve's Left 4 Dead 2. Wait, is that a Valve? Is that Valve? Valve uh, Left 4 Dead 1 and 2 were released by Valve, but they were developed by another studio. Okay, cool. Um, Left 4 Dead 1 and 2. Those are that kind of team spirit post-apocalyptic walking dead but the zombies are faster and crazier and you've got lots of different kinds that you know they can come out during the day but it definitely has that kind of oppressive feeling that i feel this movie conveys and then also the hopefully not sure out of beta video game daisy which i think as opposed to I feel like those two games would really pair well with this movie, covering different elements. First of all, you have Left 4 Dead, which kind of covers the, oh, snap, cool zombies slash vampires doing crazy things because they're mutants, and they jump and attack, and they're really fast, and uh, let's kill them and stuff. And then you have DayZ, which I feel covers like the character elements, moments, point, where there's... I've only seen a couple people play it, but... Um, there's lots of elements where you just are walking and you don't encounter a zombie, but you're like going in houses and checking. And it's a lot of those little moments that I think of are conveyed in the film. And there is action, but it's not like an action game. So I would definitely check those out if you're inclined. Those are all titles available on Steam for PC. Not sure if they've got any console ports, but... Even if you can't get a console port, dear listener, just consider watch or watch a playthrough um, just to get a feel for what I'm recommending. Well, for my shelf of trash, elsewhere instead, I am going to probably say that this is totally a shelfable film. I really like it a lot. I give it a four and a half um, dead babies dropping from the rafters out of five. I didn't give it a rating. I just realized. Did you not? Well, go ahead and rate it. Okay. I give it... 7.5 symbolically hung necklaces on a car out of 10. There you go. Very good. I like that Thanks. very much. Um, for Elsa's or instead, I'm going to recommend a little bit of reading. I'm going to recommend a corrective to uh, Christian reading of Revelation with St. Augustine's The City of God. And uh, also, if you're um, a little <clears throat> fearful of medieval or really early Christian theology and would rather read something a little bit more materialist but also appropriating Christian theology, read um, Antonio Negri's and uh, Michael Hart's Multitude, colon, War and Democracy in the Age of Empire, and uh, give you sort of a better understanding of the sort of Christian theologies and making the world a better place that I was speaking about. Now, as far as cinematic and or filmic and or multimedia recommendations, I would also echo what Alex said about 30 Days of Night. I think it's a very similar sort of vampire tale. They are quite bestial, and I like that a lot. And I'm also going to recommend a television series, um, Guillermo del Toro's The Strain. Um, and I, I, it's, it's totally that. It's totally the same sort of thing. Uh, and I will go ahead and plug this show uh, that I do. The cast inside the strain, we do sort of an after party, after buzz, um, reading and review of this uh, show called, it's called The Cast Inside the Strain. My co-host was a frequent 
co-host on this show earlier, um, Caleb Masters. Um, we are brought to you by We Got This Covered, which is sort of a, a version of Ain't It Cool News or um, Bloody Disgusting or something like that. And uh, so anyway, it's a, it, we, we have a lot of fun with the show. But I think thematically, as far as uh, the sort of uh, viral vampires, um, it's a similar sort of feel. And it's a show I'm enjoying a whole lot, and I'm very excited about the season finale coming up this very weekend. And uh, so do, do check that out. Uh, thank you so much, dear co-hosts, for your shelves and trashes, else's and instead's. Uh, let's move on to an opportunity where we can keep the conversation going, where we can actually hear what the, li- the listener thinks about our ridiculous feedback that makes you dumber for having heard it. Um, and uh, also, just a little bit more about things that we say, else's or instead's, and their um, contributions to our game, which will come later on in the show. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, do you have any feedback from um, the Facey Facebook? I do. So, our feedback this week is from a Brigham Cole, one of our frequent writers in, and he was just weighing in on our game, which was, last week was favorite romances, slash bromances. For bromance, he said Dean, Sam, and Castiel, that dynamic in Supernatural, which having only skimmed the surface of the Supernatural fandom, I would say that seems pretty legit. Uh, Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World, and of course Bill and Ted. Solid picks. Yes. And then in the romance category, April and Andy from Parks and Rec. Aww. Fry and Leela from Futurama. Oh, nice. And Will and Tracy from Seven, the short time it lasted. Womp womp. Those were good picks, Brigham. Oh, and last but not least, Han and Leah. Yeah, those were, uh, those were all excellent picks, Mr. Cole. I would... Agree with all of them, even if I haven't seen the works that they originate from. You want to live, Dustin? You listen to me. You scream, I'll break your neck. They're dead. There's nothing to be done about it but kill that thing. Can you tweet? You tweet at me, I'll fucking kill you. Ladies and gentlemen, we can be found on Twitter at good underscore trash. The only good monologue from the whole show. Yep. Do we have any feedback coming in from the Twitsy Twitter? We do have a bit, yeah. Um... Caleb Vesely tweeted in. That's at K dash under K underscore love underscore Vesely on the tweets. Uh, finishing Twin Peaks the right way tonight, uh, and, and he showed us a picture of. The, and uh, he included a picture of his Twin Peaks uh, total collected edition, the with, new Blu-ray, which is it's fantastic. I want it so bad. With some donuts in the background, and if you've seen Twin Peaks, that makes sense to you. And if you haven't, well, then never mind. Brad Lepperson tweeted in. With a response to our Lords of Salem Salem game. That's a hard word to say sometimes. Mm-hmm. Lords of Salem game. Ne- Necronomicon from the Evil Dead series. If you open the book, say the right words to close it, or you'll doom us all. It's a bad Pandora's box. That it is. Thank you, Brad Lepperson, for your feedback. <laughs> it's Epperson. Yeah, I know how it's pronounced. I don't care. We have some new followers in the form of the... GFQ Podcast Network. That's the Guys from Queens Podcast Network. Thanks, gentlemen. And also, Matt Men Podcast, which is a podcast about pro wrestling. So thanks. I love I love when we get fellow podcasters uh, following us. We also got a follow from the International... I'm sorry, I'm going to get this name right. International Association of Internet Broadcasters. That's IAIB Podcasters at IAIB Network. That's far too legit for us. I don't know if that's legit, but I'm glad they're following us. Uh, finally... Oh... And one more new follower to the Twitter feed, that's John Steele. 
on Twitter. Uh, and we have some feedback from a new listener, a uh, friend of mine, but a new listener. Um, at Cranston on Twitter uh, wrote us in saying, I have so many movies I want you guys to do. I'm going to kidnap you all and put you on a spaceship and force you to watch these movies and make commentary. Yeah. That I've always wanted like, to do you know, that. That would work like a show. Yeah. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday, AD, there was a guy named Joel, not too different from you or me. He worked at Gizmonic Institute, just another face in a red jumpsuit. He did a good job cleaning up the place, but his bosses didn't like him, so they shot him in the space. like that idea. Surely someone's done that by now. But, you know, I, I gotta say, I'm probably the spaceman and you're all the robots. Yeah, probably. As long as I get to be the gumball machine. I do have one little bit of feedback coming in from Gmail. I have an, have an electronic mail message uh, brought to us from uh, Kirsten Thurkelson. And uh, she's gonna give us some notes about the Salem Witch Trials um, in lieu of our Lord of Salem's episode. It says, Hey all, just a few interesting facts in light of the fact you did the Lords of Salem recently. The Salem Witch Trials were obviously the result of the culmination of a lot of factors such as religious fervor and paranoia. What a lot of people don't know, however, is that a fungus called ergot was also probably heavily involved. Ergot commonly contaminates rye, and chronic ergot poisoning can result in a visual and tactile parentheses, THERE ARE BUGS UNDER MY SKIN, all caps, hallucinations, as well as violent seizures. What I'm getting at here is literally the whole town was just tripping balls. Science is cool. Keep up the awesome work, guys. Um, Sign, Kirsten, a.k.a. at Cranston, that's K-R-A-N-S-T-I-N, A.K. Thurkelson, A.K. Twerkelson. But the at thing is, I believe, her Twitter handle. That is her Twitter handle. She was the source of that uh, uh, threat to hold us hostage on a spaceship. Uh, oh, good to know, good to know. Um, very likely what happened in Salem was moldy bread, and uh, that that initially began the craze, and then um, some sort of vindictive um, score settling followed thereafter. So thank you, Miss Thurkelson, uh, for that bit of feedback. Of course, you can keep following us um, on uh, by subscribing at iTunes and giving us a five-star rating there and a written verbal comment that we'll read on the air. We'd love to have the opportunity to do that. Or a one-star rating if you think we suck. I mean, yeah, we'd like to hear that as well. We'd love to find ways that we can improve ourselves and do what we do in a better sort of way. Um, also, we have to announce, uh, as we have been announcing all month of Shocktober. Two months of Shocktober, sir. It's about to be two months. On October 21st, 
We'll be screening a independent local film, Tempest Fugit, made by filmmakers Nick Sanford. Um, and uh, we'll be doing a live show of our analysis directly following. That's at 7.30 p.m. at the Paramount. That's in the historic Oklahoma City Film District, Film Row, if you will. And uh, we are very, very excited uh, to be doing uh, that show live for your entertainment delectation in the light and also to expose you to a great little film uh, made by a local filmmaker. And uh, good times we had by all. There's lots of stuff, concessions and whatnot there at the Paramount. But this is a free of charge show, no-do show, if you will. And uh, we would love to see you all there October 21st at 7.30 p.m. As far as I know, he came. He just came back from the Austin Indie Flicks um, Music um, Music Festival, Austin um, Indie Flicks uh, Movie Festival, and I feel like he. I remember seeing something on Facebook about the feedback being really positive. If he did not also receive an award for this film, so um, Nick, if you did get an award, please let us know. We'd love to <laughs> advertise that information. But otherwise, congratulations on getting a showcase there. I know it did win at Trail Dance several awards. Uh, he did not make it back, actually. Nick Sanford has tragically left this world. Uh, we send his uh, regards to his family. Probably true, also. He's probably in some sort of nether world and now is a vampire. Fighting his way out. Stalking us all. I, I was thinking kind of a Ash uh, Williams type scenario where he's stuck in hell and had to fight out. But we all know that Nick would never win this fight. No, God, no. No, no. No, he'd be fucked. Yeah, bad, bad news for Mr. Nick Sanford. We love you, Nick, and we're looking forward to hanging out with you and doing a show together on October 21st at the Paramount, downtown OKC, 7.30 p.m. I think that's enough plugging of that. Let's move on as the time is growing late, and let's play our game. Greetings, and welcome. I want to play a game. This week's game is our favorite iterations or versions or cinematic depictions of vampires. That's right. Favorite iterations, depictions, or cinematic versions of vampires brought to you by Stakeland. Stakeland. When you can't decide between zombies and vampires, pick Stakeland. Can I tell you how disappointed I was that Stakeland wasn't food porn about steak? <laughs> Likewise. Uh, would Womp. love to have seen some of that. So yes, Stakeland you... hosted by Anthony Bourdain. I'm Vincent, the vegetable vampire. In the night time when tomatoes start to scream. It's only Vincent, the vegetable vampire. In the garden of your dreams. How do you like your vampires? That's really the question that I'm wanting to ask um, my dear co-host. Shake and stirred. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, I'm going to ask you first. Uh, how do you like your vampires? Well, I do remember a couple years ago. Actually, it's probably a lot longer than that. I was in high school, so four or five-ish years ago. There was um, a brief, livid television series called Moonlight that... Did, did anybody watch Moonlight? Absolutely not. Never heard of it. Really? Nope. I can't remember the main guy's name, but he was... Only reason I know about it, because Jason Jason Doering was in it, who's the stud on Veronica Mars. Um, anyway, but he was great in it. But the vampires were... Um, it was like a cop drama, but with vampires. Huh. Yeah, and it only lasted, I think, a single season. 
But it was actually... So it was super good. Yeah. Or super bad. I remember it being super good, but, you know, the nostalgia goggles are real. Um, I'd like to give it another watch. It's been a cool minute since I've seen it. But I do remember some cool stuff about the main character who's a vampire teaming up with a journalist and they're investigating vampires killing in the area and then of course he has a bunch of vampire friends that some are good and some are evil and I seem to be vaguely aware of this now that you talk about it yeah Moonlight still clueless yep sounds good give it another watch and tell me if it sucks because I'd like to know (laughs) dear listener in the feedback you can tell us where we can watch this because I don't believe it's streaming on the flicks of nets I don't know either do let us know it might be You know what? Being a vampire sucks. Bad joke, but it's the truth. Because of what I am, I have abilities that others don't. Abilities that give me an edge. The body was found late this afternoon, and police have yet to identify the young woman. I'm working the case on my own. How come? Because I don't like seeing people get away with this kind of thing. So you work outside of the law? Let's just say I work parallel to it. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, how do you like your vampires? Well, I'm going to mention a, a film that's been mentioned by both of you already, and that's 30 Days of Night, because I like my vampires like great white sharks. Vicious, soulless, evil, dead-eyed killing machines. Man, 30 Days of Night is good. And uh, Danny Houston playing the lead vampire there. Um, in a doesn't have a lot to do except outside of a physical performance, but oh, gosh, I like that movie so much. Uh, the comic book that it's based on is also very solid. Uh, I, I like the vampires of that. They are not... Uh, th- 30 Days of Night came out at a really great time because it came out right at the height of the Twilight boom, prior to the movies, but middle of the book's um, explosion into popular culture. Yep. And it was very much an anti-Twilight. We're like, no, 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 they just want to eat your face, so deal with that. And not in the cool make-out way. Exactly. Uh, so, just a solid movie all around, but the depictions of the vampires in that film are really interesting and cool, and um, one character has to make a deal with the devil, uh, that's very interesting, so check that out, because I like that movie a whole lot. Secondly, I would say the vampires from Blade, and I'm not talking about Wesley Snipes as a daywalker, I'm talking about the vampires themselves. Two reasons. You want to know why? Listen, or I'll tell you why. Vampires make sweet-ass cannon fodder. Because anything that explodes into ashes when you cut its head off is a cool on-screen bad guy. Only when using a silver katana blade. I think the head cutting off works no matter what, but when you shoot him, it's got to be a silver bullet. Because we got to make this work somehow. <laughs> uh, also, in Blade, we get vampires that listen to a lot of techno, and that's not uh, in, a vam- in a twilighty sense of I like sexy vampires, although there's nothing wrong with a sexy vampire. That's because techno makes good kung fu fight slash gunfight music. So when your vampires are evil and also listening to techno, cue sweet-ass fight scenes. Very well played. Also, Donald Logue, who we talk about a lot on the show, is in Blade, the first one. He's a good naughty vampire, or he, naughty god, isn't naughty, he? I'm a naughty god, yeah. I like that about him. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, long-time listeners of the show know that I love me some Dracula. And I do love the original Dracula. I love Lugosi's Dracula. I don't love so much the uh, romantic Dracula, the picture in the portrait, and suddenly one girl in his new you know circle of influence if he's moved to England or the United States. The Gary Oldman Dracula. Or, or Gary Oldman also. I mean, it Although Gary Frank, Oldman's performance Frank is Frank Langella's Dracula does the same. Ever since, ever since Richard Matheson wrote that short story, 
Um, Richard Matheson's coming up a lot in the show. And uh, you know a Dracula short story? He did. And, and it was a sexy Dracula? It, well, it was a romantic Dracula. Gotcha. Anyway. And uh, so I don't love that as much. I do like them kind of cold. I do like the idea that they're cursed and uh, that immortality for them. Uh, very much like a curse. I love Guillermo del Toro's Kronos Vampire. Um, for yeah. Ocean's Grey. Yeah. Uh, do love that a lot. I do love the Blade vampires. Again, they're sort of afflicted. Uh, Blade 2 especially. Mm-hmm. Um, sorts of vampires. And of course, I mean, the corollary being the strain already mentions though so far on the show. But probably my favorite depiction of a vampire cinematically um, in two versions um, is the Nosferatu vampire. First from F.W. Murnau's um, silent film. And also uh, the way uh, Werner Herzog uh, readapted that in Nosferatu, the vampire with a Y. Vampire. Uh, Buffy, the slayer of the vampire. The vampire. And uh, I, I do like that, um, of course, uh, because of copyright issues in the early 19-teens, um, they changed names to Orlock and uh, Hutter instead. Yeah, it wasn't public domain yet. Dracula and Harker. And, of course, um, by the time Herzog gets to it, he doesn't care anymore. So it's Dracula now, and it is Harker. And I do, I do love that depiction. Again, that sort of rat-like, uh, afflicted uh, uh, depiction of the vampire. It's one of my favorite things. And so it makes me very, very happy. And also, Shadow of the Vampire, which is yes. a really complicated meta-film starring Willem Dafoe and... Um, John Malkovich, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Uh, what if the uh, original Count Orlock was actually a vampire in real Max life? Max Shrek's a vampire. Yeah, thank you. What if movie. Max Shrek is a vampire? And that's a movie I've been meaning to get around to for a long time because I hear cool things about it. It's good times. One one movie I've been meaning to watch in a while, it's, and it's vampire-related, and the only lovers left alive. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah. I mean, I do like, I like the kind of tortured, tragic borderline romantic vampires you know just we i have a if you want to have a zombie movie you can watch zombies but you know the kind of you know mulling around and and uh, well only lovers Lovers left alive is good because the vampires are romantic they're just not romantic about people people fucking suck yeah well but it's too much sexy vampire but they're afflicted Yeah. yeah but it's too much trouble to kill people so that's why they don't kill them that and the blood's infected and it's never explained, yeah. which I kind of dig. Well, it's just because people are dumb and poison themselves. It's what's wrong with the world. It's a great movie, yeah. It's a sweet Jim Jarmusch film from this year that you should all check out. That's worthy of a good trash do cinema, if I might say so. Absolutely. But thank you so much, everyone, for uh, your gameplay up to this point. Let's conclude the show, as we always do, with what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Yeah! Turn me up. Uh. Yo, who uh. is all fired up? Y'all better just wise up. Mr. Donald Stewart, I heard you're kind of fired up this week. What do you have to say? I am very fired up. Last week, Arthur mentioned uh, the series premiere of Gotham was about to air. I watched it. It's okay. It shows promise, and I'd like to see where it goes. Um, I don't love it just yet, though. I'm going to withhold judgment until a few episodes in but i'm definitely intrigued speaking of vampires and batman and all that cal inspired draculaness mm-hmm. oh yeah gotcha secondly we have a firm confirmed true detective season two cast casting announcements uh colin farrell has officially been cast as one of the cops and vince vaughn that's right vince vaughn from dodgeball and swingers 
has been cast as... Don't say I know like that. He's done dramatic work. I'm, it's a very surprising choice, but I think he can pull it off. Yes, I'm citing such dramatic work like Wedding Crashers, of course. Uh, Arthur might have mentioned this last week, but um, I think at, up until that point they were still just rumored. This is officially confirmed casting. Um, and listener, I might be misspeaking here, so cor- feel free to correct me, but the last I heard, Rachel McAdams went from rumored to officially confirmed as a, a female cop. Uh, it has also been confirmed as cast. So we might get a McAdams assance, much like we got a McConaissance, uh, because these are two actors whose careers were mired by some bad romantic comedy choices that uh, really shackled their awesome acting abilities. So that's what's going on. Listeners know I love True Detective, so I'm very excited about that. Picked up a couple of indie games this week off of the PlayStation Network. That's one. Uh, they're both roguelikes. For those not in the know, a roguelike uh, is a game where you die, and every time you die, everything starts all over, including the world you're playing in. Wow. Yeah, so you got to start from scratch. Death is no joke. Uh, the first of which is called Don't Starve, which is kind of oh, a yeah. Tim Burton art-inspired uh, game where you got to forage for food and hide from monsters. Uh, for gamers, it's definitely got some shades of uh, Minecraft in there. It's been out for a while now, but it's been on PlayStation for a couple months, and it's a lot of fun. It's very kind of cheeky art style. Really cool art really style. Really interesting art style. And really I have no idea what this is, but I know my kids love Minecraft, so I'm intrigued. It's yeah, like, make them play it. It's It's got some really uh, interesting character designs and really cool art style, and uh, it's very challenging and, and very fun to play. I also picked up Rogue Legacy, which is a side-scrolling game, which That's you gotta great. fight through a castle, and every time you die, you have to pick one of your character's three heirs, and they all have different uh, perks, I guess you could call them, or genetic uh, defaults. Some of them are dyslexic, so text in the world is backwards. Um, sometimes they're super small, they're, they have dwarfism, so it's easier to get into some places, or sometimes they have gigantism, so it's uh, harder for enemies to knock them back. Sometimes they have poor leg circulation, so they don't activate spike pits. Isn't there a fear of chickens? There is a fear of chickens, yes. There's all kinds of fun little quirks in this, but it's also another very challenging and very rewarding and very fun and funny game to play. Sounds like a choose-your-adventure novel. Not at all. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know. uh, It's a a side-scroller. It's like Mario. It's just hella hard. Er. Mario is no joke. Finally... Uh, this week I listened to a, an interview that Mark Marin did on his podcast WTF with Leonard Malton, uh, that is a film reviewer, critic, uh, extraordinaire. We love us some Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton, very, uh, just a very affable seeming gentleman. Uh, but they talk a lot about cinema and why both of them love movies and why Leonard Malton chose to make, write about movies and how he became, uh, known for writing about movies and how that career path let him down, but it's just really, if you like this show, you should listen to that episode of WTF, because it's a really fun conversation uh, about movies and, and, and a love of cinema, and I really took a lot away from that uh, episode. Been listening, catching up on a lot of uh, back catalog episodes of Mark Maron's WTF lately, but that was one that really stood out as worth mentioning on this show. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohanner, are you fired up this week? I am, and... Yes, it is about Dota, and it'll be very short, I promise. So It we, always is. Okay, uh, recently it was just dropped, like, the actual patch for this time period. It's called Rekindling Soul. It's got, um, they've really done some reconfiguration of how the game works, which has caused a lot of drama in the community. They've, um, just for some interesting 
um, background that I know the listener can relate to. Um, and before, if you were fighting another team, you know, if you get a big lead, well, the game's pretty much over. But they implemented a, um, a game mechanic that allows you to rubber band back. I don't know if you ever played Mario Kart, did you? Mario Kart, yeah. Okay, so you know how whenever you're in later places, you'll get, like, the cool supercharged powers, Mm -hmm. and, you know, when you're in first place, you don't get that. Well, they kind of implemented a similar structure um, in that, and it's getting a lot of flack, and so they're trying to figure out what's the best balance for implementing a game mechanic that makes it more interesting to watch, and it's not just, oh, we know who wins from the first five minutes. So that's all I'll say about that. If you ever want to talk to me about Dota, just hit me up on Twitter, and we'll have a lovely lovely conversation um next i have also been going through some podcast back catalog i've been catching up on my laser time network shows which are a a great number of um pop culture podcasts um there's you know the main show laser time and then they have video game apocalypse only about video games uh cape crisis about comic books and they have a wrestling podcast but i just caught up on um my main pop culture show and uh, they did this great episode all about spam, like just not like the meat byproduct, but you know the internet byproduct. Um, hey, don't be dissing spam. Yeah, uh, there was. I found myself cackling uh, too too many times, and it was a very fantastic episode. So check out Laser Time if you feel so inclined. And two last things, both actually about movies and both about local movies to boot. So um, one of my friends, Marcy, went to the same um, contest in Austin, the Indie Flicks, I want to say music festival, I think it's because I'm thinking Austin City Limits, but um, movie festival, and she took home Best Screenplay. Um, and well the, done. Yeah, she's an amazing person, so... And I also think that with the best screenplay prize comes with the fact that it will be produced and made into a real feature-length film. Well, good for her. So, that's awesome. Yeah, she's a fantastic person and it couldn't happen to someone that's more deserving. And the other thing that's happening is in Oklahoma right now, they're filming a feature-length film about Teata, which... Do you guys know about Teata? I have no idea what okay. that means. I know something uh, for once. So uh, Teata is... She was a prominent Native American uh, figure, and I'm trying to remember her lifespan. She she was definitely in early 19 teens to um, probably 1980 was her lifespan. But she was a um, Native American storyteller who ended up becoming world famous, telling stories for the Queen of England. Um, for people across, around the world, the President of the United States, she went to the White House several times and, you know, really became an ambassador for Native American um, art and literature and culture. Um, and so she went to the she went to the college that my father still teaches at um, oh, wow. as, a, as a student, I believe. And so they are filming a movie about her life. They already have, there's already a musical about her life. But they're filming a movie about her life. It's filming in Guthrie right now. And so there's calls for extras. So um, anyway, if, I don't know if I can pass this information along, but I can check and see if there are extra spots still available. If anyone's interested in being an extra in a movie. That's fabulous. That's yeah. really cool. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. I'm also sort of podcast fired up. This is a now defunct podcast because it was set up to be only a hundred episodes long. It's a hundred years of horror from 1912 to 2012, and uh, the Phantom Eric 
because um, sometimes podcasters feel the need to take on names, and that's just a thing that they do. And if you're in the podcasting circles, you'll find out that this happens a lot. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, we don't. We just we say who we are. But um, he takes on a hundred films uh, throughout huh. a, a full century of horror, and he puts a rule upon himself in that he will not see any film that he's already seen before, and that um, he will do no sequels. And so, um, not every film is a film that I'm familiar with, but I've worked through those films, and I'm starting to kind of work my way back through the back catalog of films that I'm, I'm less familiar with. What he was the first th- one? What was the last one? The last one was... I don't even remember what the first one is. The last one is um, Cabin in the Woods. Nice. And, nice. And so, that is a great place to end a horror plot. He waited for like two years to watch The Cabin in the Woods... Show did. Oh my god! And that I think I think thing. the thing came to an end though in uh, late 2013, early 2014. Wait, so is he talking about he watches it whenever the release date, and he only watches in order? He only watches in order. So chronologically, a film from 1912. The next episode is a film from 
And so the found footage film that didn't quite start it all, but definitely started the craze because it started it all, of course, be Hannibal. Cannibal Holocaust. That is correct. That is We're wi- not watching Cannibal Holocaust. No, but it is widely regarded as one of the first found footage films, but also Blair Witch Project is one, the one that is considered to have started the phenomenon. The project. cycle that we're kind of still in right now that it seems to be winding down. We're getting some interesting stuff out of uh, found footage lately, though. And so we're going to chat that thing up next time, dear listener. But in the meantime, take a look at a movie and think about what how it makes life meaningful, how it reflects on larger conversations about life. I think Stakeland has shown us um, um, nothing if not that. And so uh, do that, and in the meantime, uh, just enjoy films as something that give us more meaningful and satisfying lives. And until then, we'll see you next time. in my brain this weird sort of um, like fan theory um, all of Ferris Bueller's day off all of Fight Club that Mr. is always in his head the whole time and that was just him finally learning how to deal with um, steak land makes sense I mean because you think the guy would like I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't totally. It doesn't hold water because other people acknowledge Mister like, sure. separately from. Well, I mean, it, of course, if you're schizophrenic, I mean, of course they would. But, yeah, uh, but the, 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 and perhaps even that the um, other characters are sort of shades of himself, and so Sister is sort of hit him dealing with so fate. Maybe he's alone the entire time until he meets the girl. Yeah, maybe. That makes sense. And, and that, that you know, Bell, you know, is pregnant with the baby, and the baby that dies, you know, at the very, very beginning. But that he rose up and fought and you know killed all those vampires in the shed, and then was just just broken because of it and didn't didn't get his brains back.